This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast, where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of March 20th, 2023. Before we jump into the Jeopardy games, Emily, how's it going? It's going okay. My video game update is that I'm playing Spiritfarer, which is a <laughs> a cozy management game about dying, which if that sounds on brand, yep, it's on brand. And it's great. I'm really enjoying that one. And, uh, you know, chugging along through Lent at church. Last night, I went to see a Broadway show. I went to see Some Like It Hot, which I thought was oh. a very cool, really fun adaptation of the movie. I wasn't really sure kind of how they would handle some of the elements of the movie that are maybe a little bit dated and they handled them really well and thoughtfully, I thought. Nice. So, yeah. How about you? How are things going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, just chugging through the last mm -hmm. quarter of the school year and uh my video game update is that I have not had much time to play video games of late. Mm -hmm. So, I kind of got to a point, like I escaped Hades a few times and got into the, you know, the sort of the end game portion. And then I just haven't played in a while. Mm, yeah. Sadly, which is probably why I'm just so, so thoroughly depressed right now. No mm, video games. That'll do it. That'll, that'll do, do it. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But yeah. Other than that, doing fine. Just not a lot to report. So here we are. We are talking about Jeopardy on Monday March 20th, when we have the contestants Jake Garrett, a football coach and teacher from Trussville, Alabama, Melissa Clapper, a professor from Marion Station, Pennsylvania, and Kelly Berry, not Barry, but Barry, a marketing <laughs> communications specialist from Seattle, Washington, whose one-day cash winnings total 14600 Little 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 Jeopardy joke there. That was there. great. That was great. Uh, and uh, Call back. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, State of the Airport. Gifts for the sports fan? Question mark. Quite the fish story. Me in quotation marks. Myself and I, but like the optical organ. Mm -hmm. And that really was just about the eye. Mm -hmm. I guessed correctly, and and so did Jake at the six hundred dollar level of me. But I got a little worried for for a second about whether my guess would be right. Methaglin is a variety of this fermented beverage. And I thought if it's a fermented beverage that certainly has ME and likely starts with ME, it's probably mead. And in fact, it was mead, but also methaglin starts with ME. And sometimes there are categories where it's like most of the things that they're theming the category around are in the correct response, but then like in a couple of them, it flips and it's in the clue. Mm -hmm. I don't think they usually do that with quotation marks no usually that has to yeah be that has to be there in the correct response but i i had a a moment of am i sure i know what the rules are here since methaglin starts with an me does that sort of satisfy the category and i can and you know we can choose from all the fermented beverages in the world mm -hmm. but no the me is in quotation marks so it, you didn't need to have it in the correct response so i need not have worried it was mead indeed it was um, yeah 
Oh, you know what? In quite the fish story at the $800 level, it said Michael Caine said he never saw himself in this for the revenge. Quote, but I've seen the house it bought for my mom. It's fantastic. Somehow my brain decided that the only Michael Caine movie I could think of was Muppet Christmas Christmas Carol. Carol. Mommy Christmas Carol for the revenge. revenge. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, wait, I didn't even know there was a Mommy Christmas Carol too. <laughs> um, Joss is the answer here, and Michael Caine has been in many movies. He has that many, is in fact, true. Yes, more than one, but none as significant as Muppet Christmas Carol. That's true. None as culturally impactful or mm-hmm. high quality of performance. Yeah. All right. Well, now that I've embarrassed myself, Daily Double number one is in State of the Airport at the thousand dollar level, and Kelly finds it really early in the round at the fourth pick. She's at twelve hundred. Jake is at two hundred. Melissa is at zero. She makes it a true Daily Double, and she gets the clue: Sheboygan County, Gross Ill Municipal, and she gets it correct. It is Michigan. The Sheboygan <clears throat> Conservatory is a like kind of a, a plot point running joke in some like it hot. So that it was on your mind. It was on my mind. Yeah, we we watched the movie before we saw the musical. So I've I've consumed a lot of some like it hot <laughs> here in the uh, last week. In the last week, yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jake is in the lead with sixty eight hundred, Melissa at fifty two hundred, and Kelly at three thousand. And the Double Jeopardy categories are UNESCO's Intangible Cultural Heritage, Presidential Inaugurations, Alphabetic Homophones, Short Story Shorter, Walk the Line, and Cry Uncle. The $2,000 level of the UNESCO Intangible Cultural Heritage. I really enjoyed Uh, the clues. UNESCO referred to the Duduk as Armenia's equivalent of this Western reed instrument. They showed a picture, so that's how you could figure it out. Jake guessed what's a clarinet. Kelly got it with what's an oboe. Mm-hmm. I I took a an ethnomusicology course in grad school, and it was fascinating. Uh, one of the one of the most interesting classes I've ever taken. Just learning about like traditional music from all over the world and the different instruments and stuff. Mm-hmm. It brought me back. It was fun. I, nice. I enjoy remembering that. Each of us had to learn a different like quote unquote world instrument. So I learned the ball like. And everyone else picked, you know, different instruments. I don't think anyone picked the duduk, but they picked other interesting and uncommon in the United States instruments. Mm-hmm. Nice. We had a miss that turned into a triple stumper at the $1,200 level of presidential inaugurations, which I thought was a good category overall. Interesting stuff. The clue there was FDR's first inaugural gave us this 10-word statement, a firm belief about nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. Jake tried, what is, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but that is not correct. Also, not quite 10 words, but you know. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself, is the exact phrasing. It's unlikely that you will have to come up with the exact phrasing in a trivia setting, but it is an iambic pentameter, I guess. Yeah, wait, no, maybe not. Iambic hexameter, I guess, but it's iambic in any case. If you ever need to find the exact wording, that helps to know. I had not realized that, but yeah, that's Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah. In college, I took a rhetoric course where we studied um, famous speeches and looked for various rhetorical devices, all kinds of all kinds of rhetorical stuff and analyzed like inaugural addresses and various kinds of speeches, which was 
kind of a cool lens to look at some some cool historical texts through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So Daily Double number two. It's pretty late in the round. They both are. It's at the $2,000 level of Cry Uncle. Uh, Melissa uncovers it. She's at 15,600. Kelly is at 8,200. And Jake is at 12,400. And she wagers 5,000. He gets the clue in a letter to Tacitus. This man wrote of his elder uncle's death at Vesuvius from, quote, some gross and noxious vapor. And uh, she gets correct with who is Pliny. That is Pliny the Younger Mm -hmm. writing about Pliny the Elder. Yep. Who is very important to medical history, apparently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, Daily Double number three is the very last pick of the round. It's at the $2,000 level of alphabetic homophones. And Melissa finds it. She is at 21,400 with Jake at 12,400 and Kelly at 8,200. She wagers 3,000. I think she should have gone big enough to get a lock, right? We're on the very last clue of the round. I think so too. Yeah. Anything from 3,400 up, 3,401 up, if she gets it correct, she will then have a lock and final jeopardy will be irrelevant to you know to whether she wins or not and i don't think it hurts her much to wager a little more she may just not have thought through what an advantage it would have given her to wager a little more or might have gotten her arithmetic wrong anyway she uh, she wagers three thousand and she gets the clue it's a term for the seat of authority of a bishop and she gets it correct it's a c so at the end of Double Jeopardy, Kelly is at 8,200, Melissa is at 24,400, and Jake is at 12,400. And the final Jeopardy category is countries of Africa. And the clue, at one time, a province of the Roman Empire, this kingdom is known to Arabic scholars as Al-Maghrib al-Aqsa, the far west. Everyone got this. Kelly wrote, what is Morocco? That is correct. The farthest west of North Africa and wagered 8,000. Jake also wrote, what is Morocco? And bet everything, 12,400. So he doubles up. And Melissa also got it correct and wagered 401, which resulted in her winning by $1. Mm-hmm. So on Tuesday, our contestants are Charlotte Diffendale, a letter carrier from Albany, New York. Brandon Anderson, a communications director from Columbus, Ohio, and Melissa Clapper, a professor from Marion Station, Pennsylvania, whose one-day cash winnings total $24,801. And the Jeopardy! round categories are made in Pennsylvania, to the mountaintop, the 1980s, aka It's a Joke, and four-letter verbs with V in quotation marks. I saw somebody get upset about the $800 level of aka... Also mm. called baleen, this material has been used for corsets and, and northern native people's sled runners. That was a triple stumper. They were looking for whalebone. We probably saw the same person get upset get upset about that. Yeah. Like, is it is it actually whalebone? Is baleen the same thing? Is it not? So, all right. Baleen certainly was used for corsets from what I'm very quickly Googling here. So I think what I'm understanding is that baleen was used for corsets and for sled runners, but it's not the bone of whales. Mm. But I'm pretty sure that corsets with baleen, like it was referred to as whale bone, but it's you call that the boning of the corset. I don't know. 
that would have been an easily checkable thing. So I imagine the Jeopardy writers got it right in that that material has been called both baleen and whalebone, even if it's not technically the same thing. Yeah. You know, the $1,000 level of it's a joke, like, why are we amplifying this on Jeopardy? I don't know. Um, ben Stiller guessing Zach Galifianakis's breakfast diet suggested it's egg these uh, egg yellows. I don't know. That seems a little like body shamey to me. Yeah. Right. Like why? Yeah. I'm going to guess that was from between two ferns or something. Yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping it was in that setting where the two of them just pretend to be mean to each other. But yeah. without that context, it's yeah. just Ben Stiller being a dick. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the To the Mountaintop category. It's pick number 13. Charlotte finds it. She's at 600. Melissa's at 2200. And Brandon is at negative 800. Although Charlotte really should have had, I don't know, should have been given like an extra couple thousand for that jacket. <laughs> she wagers a thousand, gets a clue. The Gouter route is the most popular path from Shamanics up this roof of Europe. How do you pronounce that? Chamonix? Chamonix? I don't know. It's, it's spelled shamonix. Sh- yeah. Uh, oh, I, oh, Google has it. Chamonix. Chamonix. This pop, the most popular path from Chamonix up this quote roof of Europe, and she got to correct that small block. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Melissa's at thirty six hundred, Brandon's at forty two hundred, and Charlotte is at forty six hundred. And the double Jeopardy round categories are TV and movie cities, books. The future is now. Two word terms, the life sciences, etymology, and I love a man in cuneiform. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't though? You know, it's good. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. And once again, I will thank the Cinema Classic Three Hundred for uh, reminding me of a correct response that turned into a triple stumper in that category. The sixteen hundred dollar level. Sir Henry Rawlinson deciphered a lofty inscription on a cliff regarding this great king who lost at Marathon, and that's Darius the Great of mm-hmm. Persia. At the end of 300, there's that monologue about how Xerxes' father, Darius, was defeated on the plains of Marathon, mm-hmm. and blah, 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 blah. I've seen 300 a lot. <laughs> I'm starting to think I should watch 300 again. It's so good. It's just <laughs> such a good movie. <laughs> It's so entertaining. Oh. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that. It's just really, it's just really yeah. What yeah. do you have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you got mm-hmm. a couple hours to just like switch off and and enjoy yourself, yeah, do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had never thought about the etymology of the word disaster. So mm. we got that at the eight hundred dollar level of etymology. This word meaning catastrophe. Once also referred to a calamity due to a misalignment of the stars. And once I heard it, I was like, oh, Aster, right? Like, there yeah. it is. It just, I hadn't ever thought about it. So, yeah, that is, yeah. That, is, that is an interesting one. It's mm-hmm. also interesting, not at all related to that, but the, the $1,200 level of the life sciences with his descriptions of insect anatomy, Aristotle laid the groundwork for this life science. That's entomology and they put that right next to the etymology category yeah that's just uh-huh. that's just cruel they're just begging someone to say etymology mm-hmm. yeah daily double number two is 
at the $800 level of two word terms and Charlotte finds it at pick number 14. Um, she's at 5,800 with Melissa at 13,600 and Brandon at 6,600. And she makes it a true daily double and gets the clue until the end of the 19th century. This name for a horse racing achievement was only used to describe the papal tiara. And she gets it correct. It's a triple crown. Hmm. I didn't know that. I also did not know that. With my graduate degree in religion and stuff, I, I would have still gotten it from horse racing achievement. Oh, yeah. I would. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like that and, you have a, a master's in religion and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a master's in divinity. I have, I have mastered divinity. Right. Uh, that is the coolest one. Yeah. It's like, you have mastered divinity? Gosh, mm -hmm. you can do anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And daily demo number three is in the etymology category at the $1,600 level, pick number 17. And Melissa finds this one. She's at 14,000. Brandon's at 6,600. Charlotte's at 10,400. And wagers 4,000. Gets the clue. The word delectable is related to this word that refers to one who dabbles in the fine arts or other areas. And she gets it correct with what is dilettante. Mm -hmm. Dil dilettante. Dilettante. Uh, so at the end of the double jeopardy round, Melissa's in the lead with 22,800. Brandon is at 9,000. Charlotte's at 14,000. The final jeopardy category is medieval places as opposed to medieval times. Hilarious. And it's a, it's a great dining establishment. Um, the clue is one of the participants in an 1170 event at this place said, let us away knights. He will rise no more. This was a triple stumper. Brandon tried what is the Holy Sepulchre and wagered 9,000. Ken says thinking of the Crusades, I assume, and Brandon agrees. That's what he was thinking of. Uh, so he drops down to zero. Charlotte uh, wrote, what is Hasting? I think thinking of the Battle of Hastings, Yeah, I assume. About 100 that's, years off. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little earlier, but you know, I mean... What, what's 100 years between friends? Mm -hmm. She's wagered 8801. She was trying to get above where Melissa was at the time, uh, you know, for, as going into Final Jeopardy, but that drops her down to 5199. And Melissa tried what is Paris. That is also incorrect. Uh, she's wagered 5201, dropping her down to 17,599. And what we were looking for here is Canterbury Cathedral. And the, the murder of Thomas Abeckett is the event that this is referencing. With all of my church history degrees, I know this from the Ken Follett novel, The Pillars of the Earth. Exactly. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no wrong way to know something. Nope, 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 nope. So Melissa lands at 17,599, which is still enough to give her the win by a pretty significant margin. Yeah. So that brings us to Wednesday when we have the contestants, Zach Wisner-Gross, a vice president of math curriculum from Roslyn Heights, New York, Karen Morris, a veterinary student from Christiansburg, Virginia, and Melissa Clapper, a professor from Marion Station, Pennsylvania, whose two-day cash winnings total $42,400. The Jeopardy round categories are possessive lit, long-lived creatures, around the house, four-letter sports terms, apply the rainbow color, and at last, with last in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. Zach kept bringing us back to four-letter sports terms. Mm -hmm. Although he didn't get one of those correct until 
pick number uh, 22. Yeah, pick number 22, right? He brought us there, and Melissa got the second half of a golf course. That was the back nine, two four-letter words. And he brought us there again on pick number eight, and it was four words in hockey come in three types, the center and a left and right, this. And I think Zach lost track a little bit of the category and what was already in the in the clue and, and rang in and said forward. And then Karen got the rebound with wing thousand about some apparently obscure baseball thing called a hold. <laughs> I, I don't know. It makes sense that the thousand dollar level would be some baseball stat because there are just too, so many of them. Yeah. I cannot tell what is an obscure baseball thing and what is a well-known baseball thing because none of them are very well known by me. Yeah, that one was a triple stumper. But then the 22nd and 23rd picks at the $400 and $200 level he did get after after bringing us back there again. Yeah. It was that was a call in football and a post in basketball. Yeah. In any case. You sound very <laughs> confident with those. Yes. Totally co- I know a lot about sports. I don't know I don't know a lot about sports. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, Whenever I know a thing about sports and learnedly, I get a cool three points because nice. <laughs> nobody expects that, me to know anything. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's me for apparently theater. My theater score is really bad. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. All anyway. right. Well, I'll just keep chattering about Broadway plays and, you know, maybe you'll get some <laughs> by osmosis eventually. That'd be great. Yeah. We got one of my favorite words in the last category at the $1,000 level. A province of Russia such as Omsk or Tomsk. That's an oblast. Yeah. It just sounds like such an aggressive word. It sounds to me like it's part of the cell. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> the oblast <laughs> is the powerhouse of the cell. Can't fool me. That's the mitochondria. <laughs> I suppose it is. Daily double number one is in apply the rainbow color at the $800 level. And Melissa finds it at pick number 12. She has 3000 with Karen at 3600 and Zach at 400. She wagers 1500 and gets the clue. The highest point in South Carolina, the 3560 foot Sassafras Mountain is part of this Appalachian range. And she gets it incorrect. She tries what are the blue mountains? It's the Blue Ridge Mountains. Blue Ridge. Yeah. So she drops down a little bit, and at the end of the Jeopardy round, Melissa is at 3,500, Karen at 6,200, Zach at 2,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are 1963, making music, move that T from front to back, resilience, plateaus, and Hans solo. That was a fun Hans category. Yeah. I don't know very many Hanses, apparently, because they did about as well as the contestants did. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we learned during the interviews that Karen is a, well, and we knew she was a veterinary student, but she, she talked about being a veterinary student. And did that help her with the with the, the Krebs cycle? Maybe it did. Perhaps, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that's the kind of thing that would come up in like medical. Biochemistry. Kind of yeah. Thing. yeah. We had a Questlove present in the making music category, which was mm-hmm. awesome. This use of snippets from other artists' songs is a hip-hop tradition. In 2006, the Roots had a half hour to clear one from Radiohead before our album got shipped. So we got Jay-Z to find Tom York at the gym. <laughs> just just awesome. That's sampling. Yeah. Sampling is indeed a hip-hop tradition. Mm-hmm. I liked that move that T from front to back category. That was a fun wordplay one. A threesome and a violent uprising by a mob that is trio and riot. So that was that was kind of how that category worked. A device that ensnares and spellbound or enthralled, trap and wrapped. I don't know. That's, that was a fun one, I thought. Yeah. 
Yeah. The triple stumper in the 1963 category is a, is a name that really ought to be better known. This parachutist turned cosmonaut became the first woman in space orbiting mm. the Earth 48 times. That's Valentina Tereshkova. That's a name that should be, you know, up there with Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard and yeah. John, John Glenn, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's, she was pretty important. So, yep. Anyway, Daily Double number two is in the Plateaus category at the $800 level. Pick number 21. Karen finds it. She's at 14,600. Melissa's at 7,100. Zach is at 6,000. And she bets 6,000. And gets the clue. The vast Ateplano Plateau occupies parts of Peru and this landlocked neighbor to the southeast. And she gets it correct with what is Bolivia. And Daily Double number three is in Hans Solo at the $800 level. It's at the 25th pick, and Karen finds this one as well. She is at 21800 Melissa's at 7100 Zach is at 6400 She wagers $10,000. I think this is the wrong wager here. It's a bit big. She is in a lock position, and there is not enough money left on the board for the other contestants to break her lock. Mm-hmm. If she gets it right, she'll still be in a lock position. And if she misses, it's really anybody's game. Right. So I think this is, that's too big of a wager. I mm-hmm. think wager to keep the lock if you're wrong, I think is the move here. Yep. She gets the clue. This artist, the younger, was working on yet another portrait of Henry VIII when he died in 1543. She can't come up with a response. Hans Holbein. The younger. So Holbein is is what they were looking for here. You didn't need to know the younger necessarily. It was given in the clue. Uh, yeah. Yes, since it was in the clue. If you are familiar with the musical six, there's like the opening number, the closing number, the six numbers of the six wives of Henry VIII, and then there's the house of Holbein. That was how I happened to know that one. I think, no I wrong think way that's, to know a thing. Yeah, no, there's not. So I don't know. I think I've, I've plugged six on here before. Um, Indeed. It's a, it's a short little musical. So yeah, that's that was my connection there. But tough break for Karen on that one. So she, like you said, she drops down and now is well within reach. At the end of the double jeopardy round, Melissa's at 8,700. Karen's at 11,400. And Zach is at 7,200. And the final jeopardy category is American novelists. And the clue, he served with an airman named Johannan in World War II. And despite what readers might think, he said he enjoyed his service. Zach wrote, who is Keller, and then crossed it off and went with Heller. That is correct, but he wagered nothing. Melissa wrote, who is Heller, as in Joseph Heller. That's also correct, and wagered 8,000. So she's up to 16,700. Karen wrote, who is Hunter S. Thompson. That is incorrect. Mm-hmm. And because she wasn't in a lock, she had to wager. So she wagered 6,001. So she drops down, not to harp on it, because if she felt really good about Hans, especially at the $800 level, she made a big bet, was going for yeah. it. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, that decision led to not winning this game, <laughs> essentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Understanding the wagering decisions and the trade-offs, I think, is a big part of Jeopardy that people don't always appreciate. I often hear people who have not thought through Jeopardy strategy be like, well, you've, you've just got to go for it strategically. I'm like, okay. not in all cases, because tra- <laughs> right. if, it, if it's not strategy, if you are supposed to do the same thing every time. Right. Um, having, having the most money, yes, is the best strategy, but that 
that doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that brings us to Thursday. The contestants are Daisy Donahue, an actor and artist originally from St. Paul, Minnesota. Alec Chow, a management and program analyst from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And Melissa Clapper, a professor from Marion Station, Pennsylvania, whose three-day cash winnings total $59,100. And the Jeopardy round categories are, that's cold. On the JV squad, these are famous people with the initials JV, and you're going to need to provide both the first and the last name with a sculpture on top, five-letter literary characters, post and apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Alec almost ran that apocalyptic category. He did. Yeah. He knew his lipstick, apparently. Yeah. And the only one that he missed was the $600 level where he clearly understood the clue and just got it a little bit wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and Daisy got the rebound. Did aliens cause the fuss? In that case, try this numeric lipstick shade whose name comes before from outer space in a 1957 film title. He tried what is number nine. He's got the right number, but Daisy gets the rebound. It's plan nine, plan nine from outer space. It's a kind of a famously bad B movie. I mean, I guess. Right? That's, yeah. no, I haven't yeah, seen it. it, is. it is. I yeah. also haven't, but my understanding is yes. That, yeah. is, that is correct. Mm-hmm. The $400 of on the JV squad. He played Dawson Leary on Dawson's Creek and his last name means of the Creek. That's James Vanderbeek who has been coming across my TikTok feed regularly. And his TikTok is really funny. He's just like an aging dad now who like occasionally finds sort of like nineties nostalgia memorabilia and checks to see whether it has him on it. And like, I think there's been some like low key, like Tony Hawk style stuff of like encounters where people tell him he looks like that Dawson's Creek guy. Yeah, um. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's funny. Yeah. My my issue with that clue is that this is JV and his initials are clearly JVDB. Yeah, they're all capitalized, at least here. So yeah, that's that's fair. I don't think they count. Mm-hmm. Should go back and redo the episode. Uh, Daily double number one is in the with a sculpture on top category. It is the $800 level and pick number 23. And Melissa uncovers this one. She's at 1400 Alex at 4800 Daisy is at 3600 And she wagers 1000 Gets the clue. Commissioned by brewer Carl Jakobsen, a sculpture of this fairy tale figure sits atop a rock in Copenhagen Harbor. And she gets correct with what is the Little Mermaid. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Melissa's at 3,200, Daisy's at 3,400, and Alec is in the lead at 7,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, historic names, science, Pulitzer Prizes, TV show lingo, foreign words and phrases, and the Lincoln Highway, presented by Amor Towels. Mm-hmm. Tolls, I think. I did not even know of his novel, The Lincoln Highway. I have heard of A Gentleman in Moscow, which is another one that he wrote a few years ago, and I have not read that one yet, but I think it's coming up soon on my list. I don't know. I have not actually been reading very much. Mostly play video games. (laughs) That's okay. We can't. don't, Don't let that. Don't let that feel bad. Yeah. What media you consume is basically morally neutral. Exactly. Exactly. The $800 level of that clue, though, rankled me a little bit. The clue is figuring mm, yep, prominently I in the novel. I thought about that. 
1948 Studebaker Land Cruiser, a car manufactured in this Lincoln Highway, Indiana City, which is also home to the students attending Notre Dame. Alec guessed, what is West Lafayette? That is where Purdue University is. Notre Dame is in South Bend, which Mm -hmm. I did not know, or I couldn't remember when I was on Jeopardy. That was a missed final for me. Yeah. This $1,600 level of, of TV show lingo. We had a triple stumper. This substance powers spaceships on Star Trek. Nobody could think of it. I couldn't think of it either, honestly. It's dilithium, dilithium crystals. Mm-hmm. And who was it? Was it Daisy was like, oh, it betrayed me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if she meant TV show, lingo, like the category, or if she meant like Star Trek. Like Star Trek specifically. But yeah. That was what I took away. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Daily double number two comes up in foreign words and phrases at the $1,600 level. And Melissa finds this one is pick number 19. She's at 6,400 with Alec at 14,000 and Daisy at 4,600. She wagers 4,000 and she gets the clue. An architectural digest headline said this term dictated the layout of a light-filled residence in Beijing. And she can't think of anything. She doesn't offer a response. Feng Shui is what they're looking for here. So she drops down to to, uh, 2,400. Yeah. I thought that was kind of a weirdly worded question. Yeah. I didn't get anywhere close to feng shui. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. Yeah. But reading it back, like it, it's, it's not wrong. It just, it felt like it was trying to point in a different direction, but yeah. And daily double number three is in the science category at the $2,000 level pick number 22. And Melissa also finds this one. She's very good at finding the daily doubles. Uh, she's at 6,400. Alec is at 14,000. Daisy's at 4,600 and she wagers 4,000. Gets the clue, atomic number 87, this element named for a country by Marguerite Perret is the heaviest of the alkali metals. And she guesses what is scandium, but it is francium Mm -hmm. down there at the bottom of the first column. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Alec is in a lock position with 15,200. Melissa's at... 6,800. Daisy's at 4,600. Melissa really fought to make it back up into contention and and had some success, but just didn't quite get there after those two daily double misses. That's 8,000 is a lot to come back from. And yeah, uh, yeah, she made a valiant effort. It was not too far off, but just didn't quite go her way. Uh, The final Jeopardy category is movie theme songs. And the clue is Monty Norman, the composer of this character's theme, said the staccato riff conveyed sexiness, mystery, and ruthlessness. Daisy <laughs> had, had written down, like, maybe, oh, maybe she was heading for Darth Vader. I said, the J Archive <laughs> transcribed it as D A R crossed off and then T H T. Yeah. I didn't, I did not get all those letters from what she had written, but okay. She and Ken had a little back and forth. Ken didn't know who she was going for. And she said, that's the mystery <laughs> and the sexiness. Right. Anyway, she wagered 2,500. So that drops her down to 2,100. Melissa tried who is Lara. Ken uh, surmises from Dr. Zhivago. And that's not correct either. She's wagered 5,000. So she drops down to 1,800. And Alec was the one who got it. Who is Bond? James Bond. James Bond. And he's wagered 305, which brings him up to 15,505 and gives him the win. 
My first thought of was I was trying to come up with a like a, a character theme was the Pink Panther, and I was like, I don't know that I would ever describe that cartoon as sexy. <laughs> I mean, unless yeah. it's meant to convey, you know, Inspector Clouseau, because he exudes, you know, sexiness, yeah, <laughs> and ruthlessness. So that brings us to Friday when we have the contestants Michael Murphy, a test engineer from Gilroy, California, Tamara Gottis, an editor from Chicago, Illinois, and Alec Chow, a management and program analyst from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who's won a cash earnings total $15,505. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, U.S. Metropolitan Partners, Cats, the non-musical, Finish Him, as in finland what'll it be with b in quotation marks change a letter and the wwe which is a uh, video category with various wwe stars mm-hmm. that was an interesting one yes the contestants got all five of them so yeah good for them yeah they did <laughs> i expected to get none of them but the jeopardy writers made them accessible as they are want to do and so i knew three of them i knew three and the other two i might have been able to guess but i don't think i would have tried to ring it on sure yeah sure, yeah it was a fun category i thought it was yeah. it was i liked it it was an it was a good change of pace and you know there are a lot or maybe maybe not a lot but there there is a, a very vocal amount of trivia people who are way into wrestling mm-hmm yeah and I bet I bet a lot of people really appreciated having that because does not come up on Jeopardy very much at all. Mm. I enjoyed the finish him category, although it's interesting that they call Santa Claus the Yule Goat. Yeah, I thought when it saw Yule Goat, I was like, oh, that must be Krampus. Yeah, or I was like, reindeer are not goats, right? Like, I like <laughs> reindeer am not goat. Yeah, I was like, do they do they do goats instead of reindeer in Finland? Mm-hmm. It, it did not occur to me that we were talking about a human. The jolly yes. man. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And then the $1,000 level. I'll never pass up an opportunity to mention this. The Colervo Symphony sounds like a thriller novel, but in 1892 was this man's first large-scale orchestral piece. Michael got it. That's Sibelius. Because, of course, if a Finnish person category comes up, you should always have Sibelius. Ready. Right. The basically one composer that you need to know from finland mm-hmm. and the clairville symphony is pretty good mm-hmm. i like it yeah i don't know that particular symphony uh it's not as well known yeah <laughs> but. they struggled with the change a letter category uh-huh. oh my goodness one two of them were answered correctly yep. at the 200 hundred dollar level a close buddy changes a letter to become a labyrinth Tomorrow rings in and says, what is pal? And I don't know. And then I think that that sort of anchored Alec to pal, maybe, because he rang in and tried what is pal and pan. Pan's Labyrinth is a thing. I think he's thinking of the movie Pan's Labyrinth. I see the thought process, but mate and maze are the words they were looking for there. And we had a few, few misses in this one. Yeah. Um, yeah just didn't didn't quite work out for the contestants that category is where we find daily double number one it's at the 800 hundred dollar level and it's the 27th pick and michael uncovers it he is at 4800 
Alec is at 6,600. Tamara's at negative 200. He wagers 4,000, uh, looking to take the lead. And he gets the clue to leave a lover in the lurch, takes on a change to become Highland Ware. And he got this one. I thought it was one of the more accessible mm-hmm. of the clues here. A lot of the clues here, I thought each half had several different things it could be. And so finding the pair was difficult. Um, but Highland Ware gives us kilt. Uh, I yeah, guess pretty clearly. Yeah, I guess there could be other Highland Ware, but like Highland Ware Jeopardy clue, it's going to be kilt. Mm-hmm. So jilt and kilt is the correct response and he gets it. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Michael still has the lead with 8,800. Alec is at 7,000. Uh, Tamara has made it out of the red. She's at 800. And the double Jeopardy categories are The Fog of War, Before and Actors, At Rest in Westminster Abbey, U.S. Colleges, Rejected Authors, and Six Letter Rhymers. Six Letter Rhymers were usually single words or like in one case a hyphenated term where the two syllables rhyme with each other it would not have occurred to me to think of burner as a rhyming word but i guess i guess it is yeah it has that internal rhyme i guess yeah (laughs) yeah we had the 1600 level of rejected authors we had a unfortunate turn the clue is one publisher thought no one would be interested in this man's contiki because no one drowned. Tamara guessed, who is Kipling? That's incorrect. Michael rang in and said, Thor hired all. And Ken did not say anything. Not a word. And then he said, Thor hired all again. And Ken did not accept it because he did not phrase it in the form of a question. Mm-hmm. In the Jeopardy round, they'll give you a phrasing prompt if you if you forget to phrase in the form of a question. In the double Jeopardy round, you do not you get absolutely do a not. reminder. Yep. Yeah. And then the, the following clue was the one above it. This title, Auntie of Patrick Dennis's novel, was too irrepressible for more than a dozen publishers before it came out in 1955. And Michael was very clear to say, who is me? Yep. Before and actors was brutal. Yeah, we only saw three of them. We saw three of them. Three questions were left on the board, two from that category and one from At Rest in Westminster Abbey. And this was a fine category to not get to if they were going to leave some on the board. I thought these were, I mean, pop culture isn't my forte, but these were, I thought these were really hard. Honestly, I thought the 1600 was the easiest. Creed star who got involved with a drug kingpin's kitty and Keanu. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's Michael B. Jordan Peel. Alec only guessed who is Michael B. Jordan. Uh, didn't finish the before and after. But like portrayal of the baseball bat wheeling Negan? Is it Negan? I don't, I don't know. know. The Walking Dead yeah. who narrated March of the Prengans. I guess a lot of people watch The Walking Dead so they might know Jeffrey Dean Morgan but I didn't. Yeah, I remembered that Morgan Freeman narrated March of the Penguins but I did not know Jeffrey Dean Morgan's name so sure. uh, yeah, yeah I, I watched a little bit of The Walking Dead way back but I, I, yeah, you could have given me all day and I wouldn't have thought of that. So, right. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know Damon Wayans roles. Yeah. Roger Murtaugh. I don't know who that that? is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm just hopelessly out of touch, but. Yeah, me too. uh, Yes. That category. I feel it's sometimes the Jeopardy writers forget that they are in showbiz and have specialized knowledge of showbiz, right? And I like think that's true, yes. And they write questions that seem easy to them because they are 
specialized in that field, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. And I feel like that may be what happened here. Like, I feel like we needed to dumb this one down quite a bit for it to be typical double jeopardy difficulty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree with you there. All of these could be $2,000 level clues to my mind. (laughs) Daily double number two is in the fog of war category at the $1,200 level. Tamara finds it. She's at $2,400. It's pick number 12 in the round. Alex at $7,000. Michael's at $8,400. And she wagers $2,400. And the clue is, at the 1776 Battle of Long Island, Fog helped save the defeated Continental Army as it fled to Manhattan across this river. And of course, because everyone needs to know everything about New York, she knows that that's the East River. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, they do. Gets it right. Yes, they do. Uh, I mean, what river goes through Denver? Do we know that one? I don't know that one. It's the Platte. Oh, I should have known that one. Yeah. Daily Double number three is in At Rest in Westminster Abbey at the $1,600 level. And Tamara finds this one at pick number 25. Uh, She's at 8,800. She's worked her way into the lead after, you know, being in the red for a good bit of the Jeopardy round. So go Tamara. So she's at 8,800, Alec at 7,000, Michael at 7,200. She wagers 3,000 and she gets the clue associated with measurement. This first man made a Lord for his scientific work and she gets it correct. Uh, Lord Kelvin is the, Mm -hmm. is the response here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, she has extended her lead to 13,800. Alec is at 7,800 and Michael's at 7,200. And we get the final Jeopardy category, symbols. And the clue, in math, it's a rotated V. In society, it's a feeling of some marginalized or underrepresented people. This final Jeopardy is controversial. Yes. So I'll just, I'll read what the answers were. Michael guessed, what is subdivision? That's incorrect, and that that's not the controversy. And wagered 6601. Alec wrote, what is inequality and wagered 4801 that was ruled incorrect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and tamara wrote what is less than and wagered 1801 and that was ruled correct they were looking for less than mm-hmm. like okay okay but the less than is one of the inequality signs right yes there are five I was researching it this evening there are five inequality signs mm-hmm. less than greater than less than or equal to greater than or equal to. And that does not equal the, like the equal sign with the slash through it. So yeah, the only reason that I think they could say that's incorrect is because it's not specific enough to a less than sign, mm-hmm. given that it also includes an equal sign with a slash through it, which doesn't really, you know, it, do- or it doesn't fit the clue of like a sideways V. Right? Yeah. I just, yeah. It ultimately... Ultimately, didn't matter in terms of the score, you mm-hmm. know, like because T- Tamara made a made a cover bet and she was in the lead, so she ended up winning anyway. Yeah, but I feel bad for Alec for like knowing the right term pretty much, and maybe thinking that less than is a bit simple mm-hmm. for a Final Jeopardy response. Yes. So yeah, I don't know. Glad it didn't affect the outcome of the game. Yeah, I think I think best case scenario, this is a clumsily written clue. Yeah. And my math nerd husband sitting next to me was adamant that inequality should have been accepted. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've seen some people suggest that inequality is not doesn't fit with the like the feeling aspect 
of the second part of the clue, right? Sure, but I would disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> you probably feel like you are being treated inequally. Right. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. I think the whole clue is clumsy. And mm-hmm. isn't it nice that Tamara made a cover bet and we didn't have the game outcome riding on it? Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But that means that Tamara is the champion coming back next week. Yes. So this is the point in the episode where we remind you we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. It is still there. We still try to put the quiz questions up every week. And you can still go there to support us financially. If you so desire, you can send a few bucks a month our way and help us pay for the uh, various things that we pay for, like hosting and editing programs and such but of course if you don't want to go there don't want to support us financially that's okay because there are more important things to send your money toward and those are uh listed in the show notes of course if you want to give your money elsewhere that's also a handful of yes i I think there are probably more important things that we don't list in the show notes maybe a few i mean yeah i mean there could be i guess maybe Mm -hmm. sure sort of whatever but anyway yeah that's enough talk about money. It's gauche to talk about money, yes. or so I'm told. Mm-hmm. So, Emily. Yes, Kyle. What? Go ahead and tell the fine folks what we're going to be diving into this uh, week. That is a good question. I think maybe we're talking about Hans Holbein. We are not talking about Hans Holbein, the elder or younger. Okay. Are we talking about Canterbury Cathedral? We are. Yeah! Sort of. Sort of. We're really talking about Thomas. Oh, great. Okay, cool. Because I can never remember which Thomas is which. Hey, that's exactly why I picked it. Because I was (laughs) like, I know nothing about this Thomas, which is why I can never remember which Thomas went where. There's Thomas Uh, Moore. There's Thomas Beckett. There's Thomas Aquinas. I don't know. There's just a bunch of Thomases. mm -hmm. There are multiple Thomas Beckett's also. Oh, no. This Thomas Beckett is maybe the most famous one, but there is another. I'll get it. I'll I'll explain (sighs) And this one is actually not Thomas a Beckett. It's Thomas Beckett. He wasn't called Thomas a Beckett until like a, an 18th century writing. What? Which may have been meant to like sort of associate with Thomas a Kempis or something. Huh. But a Beckett did not. He's just Thomas Beckett and was for, you know, his whole life and for many centuries afterward. But at some point, someone wrote him his name as Thomas a Beckett, and it kind of stuck. But there is actually another Thomas a Beckett who was an Australian solicitor and, like, figure. So anyway, I figured I'd talk about Thomas Beckett because, as we just said, yeah, <laughs> I get the Thomases mixed up, yeah. especially in, in English history. So here we go. Thomas Beckett, also known as St. Thomas of Canterbury, Thomas of London, and later Thomas a Beckett. Yeah, it was not. It's a post-Reformation thing. Anyway, he was born on or around the 21st of December, 1119, or maybe 1120. And we know when he died, the 29th of December, 1170. He was an English nobleman. He served as Lord Chancellor from 1155 to 1162, and then notably as Archbishop of Canterbury from 1162 until his murder in 1170. He is a saint and martyr of the Catholic Church and the Anglican Communion. After his role as Lord Chancellor, he engaged in conflict with Henry II, who was King of England. That was over the rights and privileges of the Church. And he was murdered by followers of the King in Canterbury Cathedral. And very soon after his death, he was canonized by Pope Alexander III. 
so just going back, I realize I didn't say this. The Jeopardy clue, this was the missed final Jeopardy on Tuesday, the triple stumper. Clue was one of the participants in an 1170 event at this place said, let us away knights, he will rise no more. And that was Canterbury Cathedral where Thomas Beckett was murdered. Mm-hmm. There are apparently a lot of biographies from the time written about Thomas Beckett. There's a lot of documentation about him, like a surprising amount given the way history was, especially this is the the 12th century. We don't have a lot of documentation from then, but there are a bunch of biographers, some of them known either known to be the person or they were given names like John of Salisbury, Edward Grimm, who Edward Grimm is believed to be a person who was in attendance at the time of his murder. Benedict of Peterborough, William of Canterbury, William Fitzstevens, no, Fitzstephen, there's no S, Guernus of Pont saint Massain, I'm pretty sure I got that wrong, Robert of Cricklid, Alan of Tewkesbury, and Benet of St. Albans, oh, and also Herbert of Bosham. Mm. There are also anonymous biographers known as Anonymous 1, Anonymous 2, or Anonymous of Lambeth, and Anonymous 3, or Lansdowne Anonymous. There are also two other accounts that are likely contemporary that appear in the Quadrologus 2 and the Thomas Saga Erkebiscops which is an Icelandic saga about Thomas Beckett written in the 14th century (laughs) based on earlier writings. Why is there an Icelandic saga about Thomas Beckett? Who knows? But that's, That's I don't know. I think that's really cool. Entirely unexpected. Um, Right. There were also other like mentions of Beckett throughout contemporary records because he was an important figure, Mm -hmm. not just in England, but like throughout Europe. So like I said, he was born in 1119 or 1120 uh, at Cheapside, London. On the 21st of December, which is the feast day of St. Thomas the Apostle. Uh, His parents were Gilbert and Matilda Beckett. His father was from Tierville in Normandy. He was either a small landowner or a petty knight. And his mother Matilda was also of Norman descent. Although there became a rumor that she was of, I think, Persian descent or or, or Saracen Hmm. at some point. That's not true. But there was a rumor that went around. It's possible that Gilbert was related to Theobald of Beck, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury. Gilbert, Thomas's father, began his life as a merchant, perhaps in textiles, but eventually wound up in London and was a property owner, living on the rental income from his properties. One of their wealthy friends, Richard de Lagle, often invited Thomas to his estates in Sussex, where he encountered hunting and hawking and learned much from Richard, who turns out later in life was a signatory of some documents and and constitutions against him. At the age of 10, Beckett went to study at Merton Priory in the southwest of the city, or southwest of Surrey. He later attended a grammar school in London. He didn't study any subjects beyond the trivium and quadrivium, which I think we've mentioned before. Uh, From the ancient Greek tradition into medieval times, They were the kind of like areas of study for general education. Mm -hmm. The trivium is the lower division comprised of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And once you have like learned the trivium, then you move on to the quadrivium, which is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Around age 20, he spent a year in Paris, but didn't study canon or civil law. However, sometime after he began his schooling, his father suffered financial reverses and Thomas was forced to earn a living as a clerk. Eventually, Beckett acquired a position in the household of Theobald of Beck, who was by then uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. Theobald entrusted him with several important missions to Rome and also sent him to Bologna and Auxerre in Burgundy. 
And there he studied canon law. In 1154, Theobald named Becket the Archdeacon of Canterbury and gave him other offices and a number of benefices and prebends like at Lincoln Cathedral and St. Paul's Cathedral, as well as the office of Provost of Beverly. So pretty quickly, even though he wasn't a trained, you know, priest or ordained or anything, he was quickly gaining influence and, and, and power within the Catholic Church within England. Remember that, you know, this is 300 years before the Protestant Reformation. Mm-hmm. His efficiency in these posts led Theobald to recommend him to King Henry II for the vacant post of Lord Chancellor. And Becket was appointed in January 1155. As Chancellor, Becket enforced the king's traditional sources of revenue that were exacted from all landowners, including churches and bishoprics. And King Henry's son, Henry the Young, was sent to live in Becket's household Hmm. for a time. In 1162, a few months after the death of Theobald, Becket was nominated as Archbishop of Canterbury. His election was confirmed on the 23rd of May by a royal council of bishops and noblemen. King Henry had hopes that Becket would continue to put the royal government first rather than the church. But around this time, apparently Thomas embraced asceticism, which is a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from sensual pleasures, often for the purpose of pursuing spiritual goals. So he he pretty quickly did an about face on his, um, I guess, role as an enforcer of government power uh, so Becket was ordained as a priest on the 2nd of June, 1162, and on the 3rd of June, he was consecrated as archbishop. A rift quickly grew between Henry and Becket as the new archbishop resigned his chancellorship and sought to recover and extend the rights of the archbishopric, which he had just previously worked against, right? He had he had just been getting, uh, you know, tax revenue from the bishopric, from the churches, and now that he's in this role, he's, he's like, nope, never mind. Mm-hmm. We want that back. We want all of this power back. This led to a series of conflicts with the king, including one over the jurisdiction of secular courts over English clergymen. And Henry began to attempt to influence other bishops against Becket in Westminster, beginning as early as 1163, where the king sought approval of the traditional rights of royal government in regard to the church. So this led to the Constitutions of Clarendon, which were a set of legislative procedures passed by Henry II in 1164. It was 16 articles, and they represented an attempt to restrict ecclesiastical privileges and curb the power of the church courts and the extent of papal authority in England. Most of the bishops of England sided with Henry, or at least agreed with him, were willing to accept the constitutions. Becket was kind of the last holdout. He did express willingness to agree to the substance of the constitutions, but he formally uh, refused to sign the documents. That led Henry to summon Becket to appear before a court, Great Council, in 1164, to answer allegations of contempt of royal authority and malfeasance in the chancellor's office. Becket was convicted on those charges, and he stormed out of the trial and fled with his family to the continent. This led to Henry issuing a number of edicts and sending people after Thomas Becket on the mainland. However, King Louis VII of France offered him protection, and Thomas spent nearly two years in the Cistercian Abbey at Pontigny, until the threats against him kind of forced him to return to Saint. Becket fought back by threatening excommunication and an interdict against the king and bishops in the kingdom. But Pope Alexander III, while he was on Thomas's side, he wanted to not go that hard and favored diplomacy. 
Papal legates were sent in 1167 with authority to act as arbitrators. In 1170, Pope Alexander sent delegates, so this is three years later (laughs) when it still hadn't been resolved, sent delegates to impose a solution to the dispute. And at that point, Henry offered a compromise that would allow Thomas to return to England from exile. So in June of 1170, the Archbishop of York, who is Roger de Pont-Levesque, along with the Bishop of London and the Bishop of Salisbury, crowned the heir apparent Henry the Young. And this breached Canterbury's privilege of coronation. So in November, Thomas Becket excommunicated all three of those bishops. King Henry was upset with that. So upon hearing the report of Becket's actions, he is said to have uttered the words that were interpreted by his knights to mean he wanted Becket killed. There's no really reliable report as to what he truly said. The most commonly quoted one, as apparently invented in 1740 and handed down by oral tradition, is, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Hmm. However, the historian Simon Shama claims that this is incorrect and rather cites the biographer Edward Grimm, who gave a quote more like, What miserable drones and traitors have I nourished and brought up in my household who let their lord be treated with such shameful contempt by a low-born cleric? So we're not sure what he said, but regardless of what it was, it was interpreted as a royal command. So four knights, Reginald Fitzers, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy, and Richard Le Breton, set out to confront the Archbishop of Canterbury. On the 29th of December, 1170, they arrived at Canterbury, And according to the accounts by Gervais of Canterbury and Edward Grimm, the knights placed their weapons under a tree outside the cathedral and hid their armor under cloaks before entering to challenge Becket. They told him he had to go to Winchester to give account of his actions, but Becket refused. When he refused to do the king's will, they went and retrieved their weapons and rushed back inside. Becket, meanwhile, proceeded to the main hall for Vespers. The other monks tried to bolt themselves in for safety, but Becket said to them, it is not right to make a fortress out of the house of prayer, and ordered them to open the doors. Uh, The knights ran in with swords drawn, shouting, where is Thomas Becket, traitor to the king and country? They found him near a door to the cloister where the monks were chanting Vespers. Upon seeing them, he said, I am no traitor and I am ready to die. And the account is that one knight grabbed him, tried to pull him outside, but Becket held onto a pillar and bowed his head to make peace with God. According to Grimm, it went like this. The impious knight suddenly set upon him and shaved off the summit of his crown, which the sacred chrism consecrated to God. Then with another blow received on the head, he remained firm. But with the third, the stricken martyr bent his knees and elbows, offering himself as a living sacrifice, saying in a low voice, for the name of Jesus and the protection of the church, I am ready to embrace death. But the third knight inflicted a grave wound upon the fallen one. And with this blow, his crown, which was large, separated from his head so that the blood turned white from the brain. Yet no less did the brain turn red from the blood. Yeah, it purpled the appearance of the church. The fifth, not a knight, but a cleric who had entered with the knights, placed his foot upon the neck of the holy priest and precious martyr. And it is horrible to say, scattered the brains with the blood across the floor, exclaiming to the rest, we can leave this place, knights, he will not get up again. Which is a quote from the Jeopardy clue. Mm -hmm. So after his death, the monks prepared his body for burial, and pretty soon after, the faithful throughout Europe began venerating Becket as a martyr. On the 21st of February, 1173, little more than two years after his death, he was canonized by Pope Alexander III in St. Peter's Church in Senyi. 
Becket's sister Mary was appointed abbess of Barking as reparation for the murder of her brother. And in 1774, during the revolt of 1773-1774, which was a rebellion against King Henry II by three of his sons and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry humbled himself in public penance at Becket's tomb at the Church of St. Dunstan's, and that became a popular pilgrimage site. The knights fled north to Morville's castle and remained there for more than a year. Uh, However, they were not arrested, and Henry did not confiscate their lands. They didn't really face much from the king. Pope Alexander did excommunicate all four. Seeking forgiveness, they traveled to Rome, where the pope ordered them to serve as knights in the Holy Land for a period of 14 years. The sentence also inspired the Knights of St. Thomas, which was an order of knights which were incorporated in 1191 at Acre. It was a particular group of crusaders, and this was the only military order native to England, just as the Gilbertine order was the only monastic order native to England. Henry VIII dissolved both of those during the Reformation, however. His body was placed beneath the floor of the eastern crypt of the cathedral, where pilgrims could insert their head and kiss the tomb through a small hole. 1220, 50 years later, Beckett's bones were moved to a new gold-plated bejeweled shrine behind the high altar at Trinity Church. After his death, there was a uh, cult that sort of grew up uh, like behind him, uh, kind of with King William the Lion of Scotland, built a new abbey, and it was dedicated to Beckett. Like I said, his um, bones were moved to Trinity Chapel. That, that translation was attended by... King Henry III, the papal legate, the Archbishop of Canary, Stephen Langton, and many other people. However, in 1538, during the dissolution of the monasteries from King Henry VIII, that shrine was destroyed, and he also destroyed Becket's bones and ordered all mention of his name to be obliterated. Mm -hmm. So obviously that didn't super work. A cult (laughs) grew up over the following centuries, and part of this cult's practices were drinking the water of St. Thomas, which was a mix of water and apparently the remains of the martyr's blood miraculously multiplied. That didn't jive with Orthodox followers, and I think that that practice went away pretty pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, his fame spread through the Norman world, and the first holy image of Becket is thought to be the mosaic icon still visible in Monreal Cathedral in Sicily. King William II of Sicily gave Becket's cousins refuge. And there are plenty of uh, icons and religious imagery with both the murder of uh, St. Thomas and also St. Thomas as like, you know, haloed as a saint throughout Europe from that time. Yeah. So we, that's, that's kind of like his life in the aftermath. He appears in a lot of like pop culture or like cultural works. Since then, the Canterbury Tales have a group of pilgrims heading to Beckett's shrine. King Alfonso VIII of Castile who married Eleanor Plantagenet, the second daughter of Henry II, had a wall painting his martyrdom in the San Nicolas de Soria church in Spain. The arms of the city of Canterbury uh, include the arms of Thomas Becket, and there are a bunch of modern works, including T.S. Eliot's play Murder of the Cathedral, as well as Jean Adnuil, I don't know how to pronounce his name, his play Becket. Also, Pillars of the Earth, as you mentioned before. The featured the struggle between the church and the king. Apparently in 2006, a BBC history poll or from the BBC history magazine for the worst Britain of the previous millennium had Beckett coming in second behind Jack the Ripper. Oof. The, the way this poll was done was not super, it wasn't a huge pool of people. And there was one particular historian who 
claimed that Beckett was greedy, hypocritical, the founder of gesture politics, and master of the soundbite. Hmm. Um, so he just apparently didn't like it. Tons of churches are named after him, uh, as well as schools, and even like uh, the a part of the Hungarian city of Estergom is named St. Thomas, or St. Thomas, mm-hmm. after Thomas Beckett. Uh, yeah, and his uh, his day, I guess, I don't know if it's a feast day for the Church of England and Episcopal Church, or if it's just like his holy day mm-hmm. is December 29th. So there we go. Nice. That's Thomas Beckett. Nice. I I feel like I, I, I know him much better now than I did. Yes. Associated with Henry II. He's in the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Other Thomases came much later. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, or, well, maybe not much later. Thomas Aquinas, well, his life was 1225 to 1274. So he was a okay. hundred years later. Yeah. Also, Thomas Aquinas was Italian. So that's important to remember mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Apparently known as Dr. Angelicus, one of the few doctors of Catholic Church history. Anyway, yeah. Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Beckett, very different. But I still get a mix up. So, are you ready for a quiz? Uh, yes, I am ready for a quiz. Okay, this is all about St. Thomas. I'll give you a softball. I mean, you already guessed it, what we're talking about, right? So you already have 10 points. Okay. We'll start with the softball anyway. St. Thomas the Apostle is known by what gerund because he questioned the veracity of Jesus' resurrection until he observed the crucifixion wounds himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's doubting Thomas. It is Doubting Thomas. I included that question, not because I thought it would challenge you, but in case there are listeners who do not you know, have a strong Christian background and have perhaps heard the term Doubting Thomas used in kind of like general culture, mm-hmm. that's why. Yes. That's why. That's what mm-hmm. that comes from. Uh, Thomas, I think, was also called the twin. Uh, he was, he, he had a twin. Is he Didymus? Is yes, that Didy- yeah, Didymus is? is the twin. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Okay, question number two. St. Thomas is the most popular cruise ship destination in the Caribbean, with more than 500 arrivals each year. It has a storied colonial history and is currently the gateway isle of what territory? What territory? Hmm. I don't know the Caribbean islands as well as I should. I'm guessing maybe it's the... either the U.S. or the British... Virgin Islands. I will. I'll try the British Virgin Virgin Islands. I'm sorry, it's the U.S. Virgin uh, Islands. All right. Well, I was on the right track at least. You were on the right track. You, you were as close as you could be. Yeah. <laughs> Without quite being there. Yes, it is the U.S. Virgin Islands. Yeah. Okay. A lot of islands out there, but apparently St. Thomas is the one with the most cruise ship destinations or arrivals, I guess. Yeah, I did not realize that. Know. Good to know. I would not have guessed that. I would have thought somewhere like Jamaica, right. you know, or the Bahamas, right? But no, mm-hmm. apparently it's St. Thomas. Yeah. Huh. All right. Question number three. The jazz standard St. Thomas is among the most recognizable tunes of what American tenor saxophonist? The song was first released on his 1956 album, Saxophone Colossus. He is, of course, not the male child of a fictional hard-boiled detective created by Walter Mosley. Okay. Tenor saxophonist. Shares a last name with 
fictional detective created by Walter Mosley. And there was an album name in there. What was the album name? Saxophone Colossus. I didn't expect that to be the one that got you there. Okay, cool. I cannot remember the name of the Walter Mosley detective. My brain just keeps helpfully offering me Sam Spade over and over and over again. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to get the name of the detective. So I'm trying to think, uh, like, probably I've heard of the saxophonist at some point. I'm having a hard time pulling the name of any saxophonist other than John Coltrane. I don't think it's John Coltrane. But if I can't think of another saxophonist, I will go with him rather than just saying I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm going to pull the name of another saxophonist. I'm just going to go with Coltrane. All right. When you when you think of tenor saxophone, you should think of John Coltrane first. Absolutely. Okay. 100%. Uh, and then probably just behind him, uh, for, for my mind, as far as tenor saxophonists go, you'd probably think of either Horace Silver or the correct answer, who is Sonny Rollins. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is spelled differently than Easy Rollins, but I was like, I gotta, I gotta try to bring in a clue that is not, not just like more jazz stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Sonny Rollins. Sonny Rollins. This one's a bit of a stretch, but St. Thomas Beckett does not appear in what 1966 play, which was adapted into an Academy Award winning 1968 film, which tells the story of Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine, their three sons, and the scheming and machinations that they employ to influence the succession of the English throne. Also, I will mention Catherine Hepburn uh, won a very notable award for this movie. Hmm. I think I know this one somewhere in my brain. First thought was A Man for All Seasons, but I think that that is a different Thomas. I think that one's Thomas Moore. I, be- I think that was Thomas Moore. Yeah, I believe that is Thomas Moore. Wow. Um, God, stupid Thomas. <laughs> and the other thing that came to mind is the lion in winter. So I'm going to go with that. And that is good choice because it is the lion Ooh! in winter. Nice. Yes. Catherine Hepburn won the Academy Award for Best Actress that year. Also, Barbara Streisand won the Academy Award for Best Actress that year. Mm-hmm. They tied. Mm-hmm. 1968. Yes. That was also Catherine Hepburn's third win, which was like also notable. Mm. But the fact that there were also two. Big deal. Nice. All right. Back on track. Yay. (laughs) I am confident you'll get this next one. Question five. Another British St. Thomas was what lawyer, judge, Renaissance humanist, and author who also faced execution at the command of a King Henry, but this time it was Henry VIII. Ah, this one is Thomas More. This one is Thomas More. Yes. Wrote Utopia. Yes. Among a bunch of other things. Also was a Catholic priest and did not like what King Henry was doing. Mm-hmm. Similar kind of like the king wants more power and for the church to have less. Mm-hmm. And of course mm-hmm. the priest was like, no, I don't think so. So there we go. Yes, that I think that is the man for all seasons. Yes. Thomas More. Nice. Yay. All right. You are at 10, 20, 30, 40 points. 40 points it is. Yes. Is that correct? Yep. That's yes, what I've got cause... here too. All right. And the final category is institutions of higher learning and somewhat recent television. Higher learning and somewhat recent television? This is a weird question. I'm pretty sure you'll get it. Okay. There's a lot going on there. I'm gonna, I, I'll, I'll, wager, I'll wager 39 of my 40 points. Here we go. For 79 points. 
Many institutions of higher learning throughout the world have been named after some St. Thomas or another. One such university that was renamed in 1938 for the city that it is in may or may not, it does have a business school, but it may or may not have been attended by local temp turned corporate boss turned felon turned temp, Ryan Howard, not the baseball star. Which university might that be? I can add a clue if you Yeah, There's something I'm missing here. Yeah, yeah, give me a clue. One particularly notable class may have featured a guest presentation by a local middle manager of a regional paper supply company. Oh, it was named for the city? That it is. All right, so I think I'm looking for the city that the office is set in, which I'm pretty sure is Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, you need the name of the institute. Is it like University of Scranton? It is University of Scranton. Yeah. Yes, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. It used to be St. Thomas University. I didn't know it used to be St. Thomas University. But in 1938, it was renamed University of Scranton. Yes. Huh. I told you it was a weird question. <laughs> <laughs> it took me also, a, real, a little bit to realize that we were... Uh, partially in a fictional universe here (laughs) i was like what who who on the news am i supposed to know who is a temp turned corporate corporate? (laughs) Uh, and and then and then it clicked and i got it great question (laughs) great yes 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 yeah. All right. So you got 79 points. Yeah. Hey. Nice. Yay. I got some points. And hopefully hopefully we will remember now at least something about Thomas Beckett so that when we're trying to parse the Thomases, we can at least rule that one out Mm -hmm. and maybe point closer to one of the other Thomases. Yeah. Yeah. Too many Thomases. Too many. Well, this has been delightful as always. So uh, thank you. And uh, thanks listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. And we will be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. So until then... May your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.